Our scripture reading this morning is from Micah chapter 6. It's on page 990 of the Blue Bibles. If you'd like to pull one of those out and use uh, those. Uh, We're working our way towards the end of this book as we're working our way towards the end of this summer. Uh, So let me invite you to stand as I read Micah 6. Uh, You'll know when I'm done reading because I'm going to say when I'm done, this is the word of the Lord. That's how you'll know. And when I'm done, I'm going to invite you to respond to that with gratitude. Gratitude for the Bible, not for me being done reading, but gratitude by saying thanks be to God. This is Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and what you preserve... I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, what we have here is a good old-fashioned courtroom drama. Perry Mason, Matlock, Law of Order, that kind of stuff. Scott Turow, John Grisham stuff. That's what we have here, right here. It's all the pieces you need, and that's kind of how I want to walk through it because it's pretty apparent in the text as we, as we read it. Did you see? We've got, the, we've got the summons to the trial in verses 1 and 2. That's the call for the accused to come before the court, the summons. And the accused would be God's people, if you didn't pick that up from what we already saw. We also have the plaintiff, that's verses 3 to 5. That's God, he's the aggrieved party. God, at the very least, is also probably the prosecutor and the judge, by the way, but he's God, he can play multiple roles. We also have the plea, verses 6 and 7. That's the people's response to to the summons. We have the requirement in verse 8. That was probably a better word for it, but I couldn't think of one. This is the standard that's being violated, the requirement. The, this is what God's requiring of the people that they're not doing, what the prosecutor is saying, you're not doing this, but you ought to be, which leads to the indictment in verses 9 to 12. This is the, 
the plaintiff or the prosecutor's case, how the requirement has not been met, proof beyond reasonable, just, uh, beyond reasonable doubt that justice needs to be done, right? Which leads to the sentence, verses 13 to 16, that's how the chapter ends, the consequences levied by the court in response to the guilty verdict, right? That's, the, that's what we have laid out in front of us. That's the courtroom drama. Now, for those of you kids who are good at math, despite the inevitable summer slide, if you count it as I went through it, that's six points, six points. And for those of you who are even better at math, this scares you because you're dividing that number by the number of minutes you think we have left here, and you're like, dude, you better get going. So I do, so let's get going. Six parts to the courtroom drama. The summons, the plaintiff, the plea, the requirement, the indictment, and the sentence. All right, let's start at the very beginning. That's where Sister Maria says we're supposed to start. Let's start at the beginning. The summons, verses 1 and 2. Now, you know you have a legal, legal proceeding here because of the word that's translated case in verse 1 and indictment in verse 2. All right, those are legal terms in Hebrew. It's definitely a trial that we've got uh, here. And, and verse 1 opens the summons to appear before the court. Hear what the Lord says. Now, the translation in your Bible seems to imply that God is talking directly to the people, right? You see that when it says, arise, plead your case. But apparently, as I was reading, the Hebrew isn't exactly crystal clear here. It could be, the scholars tell us, plead my case, plead your case or plead my case. In which case, if it's plead my case, God's talking to Micah here, saying to Micah, look, you go and you you issue the summons, It doesn't really make much difference, actually, when you think about it, because it would just mean that Micah is speaking the words of the Lord. In any case, either the Lord is speaking directly to his people or he's using Micah kind of as the bailiff to sort of announce the starting of the trial, the summons everyone in. You know, the, 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 the bailiff, right? Like on, uh, like on TV in the courtroom dramas that you watch. The guy that comes into the court and says, okay, all rise. Or if you've ever seen... Um, or heard a recording, I don't know if they actually ever video it, but the, they heard a recording of the start of the Supreme Court. You know how they start the Supreme Court session every session? Oye, oye, oye. All persons having business before the Honorable Supreme Court, and then they go on and on. Right? Oye, oye, oye. They say it three times. It's an old medieval French and English term that they would say at the beginning of a trial. And it makes, it, it makes you sound really official when you say something like that. Oye, oye, oye. It just means hear ye, hear ye, hear ye which is exactly what the Lord is saying here. Either he's saying it directly to the people or he's telling Micah to say it to the people like the bailiff in the back of the courtroom. But he's saying, pay attention, right? Hear what the Lord says, right? Or as our southern friends would say, listen up, y'all, God's talking. That's what's going on here. And he's talking to the people, the defendants, and even though it seems kind of weird, it also seems like he's talking to the mountains. Did you see that? God's doing that, or at least he's telling Micah to do it. He's calling the mountains to be witnesses in the, in the trial. Now, it's a metaphor, of course, right? The mountains don't answer back. But the mountains and the hills, they're witnesses because they've been around from the very beginning. They are the enduring foundations of the earth, like it says. They've been witnesses to everything the people have been doing. Anyway, that's the summons. Oye, oye, oye. Now, second, the plaintiff, verses 3, 4, and 5. Or like I said, maybe the prosecutor. But this is introducing us to God and who God is, who the, who the one is who is bringing the charge. That's why we've been singing all these songs about the, the greatness of God, the immortality, the, the majesty of, of God. That's what's going on here. He's the one who is bringing the grievance against the people. 
But verses 3, 4, and 5 show that this is a personal thing for him. This isn't just a, you know, some like, you know, man behind the, the curtain, right? He's not a detached party seeking damages here. This is a relationship that's, hap- that's, that's, that's going on, right? And, and that's how he's describing himself here because he says, I'm the God of my people. That's what he calls them. Right? The God who made a covenant with his people, God who made a covenant with this nation to be, to be with them. And so it's, this is somewhat of a, you know, this, this, this God, this, this, this plaintiff, this prosecutor here, this is a personal emotional appeal that he is making. He said, what have I done to you? That's what he asks, which presumes that the people are sort of, that they've sort of been accusing him, that they've been kind of blaming him maybe for, uh, for, for the things that have been going, around, uh, going on around them. But the two questions in verse 3 that the Lord asks are meant to put the people on the defensive, right? They need to answer him, not the other way around. And then he refers to a couple of historical examples about how he's proven his character to to them. Verse 4, he brought them up out of uh, slavery. He redeemed them. Right? He's talking about Moses. He's talking about the Exodus, the rescue from Pharaoh, Ten Commandments, the plagues, right? All that. Right? Now, the reference in verse 5, that might be a little bit more obscure to you, but the same idea. I mean, there's no Charlton Heston movie about Balak and Balaam, but it's, it's from Numbers chapter 24. Balak, the king of Moab, wanted Balaam the prophet to pronounce a, like a hex on, on Israel. You go curse them, he said. But instead, the Lord intervened and Balaam pronounced a blessing, took the intention of Balak and redeemed it, flipped it around. That's what God's saying. He's like, this, I did that. I brought you out of Egypt. I turned the curse into blessing. And then from where it says, from Shittim to Gilgal, that's speaking of two locations, one on either side of the Jordan River, where God led the people of Israel into the, into the promised land. Right, from Shittim, a place where the covenant had been broken by the people, to Gilgal, a place where the covenant was renewed after they had crossed into the promised land. The point of all this is to demonstrate that whatever the people might be accusing God of, he has not failed to uphold his end of the bargain. He is righteous in bringing his, his, his charges against Israel. He's shown them grace after grace after grace, and he wants them to remember that. It's actually stronger than what we might think of when we just say, oh, remember that? Right? Verse 5, it's more than just a simple recollection when it says remember there. You know, like when we say, oh yeah, I forgot about that, thanks. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. No, he wants the people to be gripped and moved. That's what that word remember means. Remember. Let it grab a hold of you what I have done for you. Right? And this forms the basis for why the people have wandered away from God, because they, they are no longer moved. They're no longer gripped. They've forgotten. Maybe not in the sense of like, I mean, if you said to them, hey, remember the story about how God brought the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt? It's, oh yeah, I remember that. But that's not what God's talking about. Right? They remember that, but they're no longer gripped by it. They're no longer moved by it. It's the same, I'd venture to say, for us when we wander from God. It's not because God's grace is any less, it's because we've lost our wonder, we've lost our amazement at the grace that he's shown to us. It's not amazing grace anymore. It's not amazing love anymore, right? We don't sing, and can it be that I should gain? We don't sing it anymore with wonder. It's boring grace at that point. The exodus is boring. The cross is boring. The resurrection is boring. Right, we don't say that out loud. Certainly not here. We wouldn't say that out loud. But we think it. And we act like it. Because we think subtly that God continues to owe us. Yeah, you did that for me back then. But what about like, I don't know, last week? 
In our eyes, he's probably only as good sometimes as our last test at school. What about that test last week? I, I, I prayed right before the test that you helped me. Where were you? He's only as good as our last game. You know, I did a little cross thing in the dirt before I stepped off the bat. Why did I strike out? Right? We're only as good as our last performance review on the job, the state of our marriage last week, how our kids are doing. What have you done for me last week, God? Right? We think he continues to be in our debt when in fact the opposite is the case. Now that doesn't stop us from shifting the blame back to God, which is exactly what we see in the next section, right? That's the plaintiff. He brings the case, but we've got the plea in verses 6 to 7. The people respond. God reminds them of who he is, but look at verses 6 and 7. It's in quotes in most of our Bibles because it's the people speaking back to, to God. How do you plead, the judge asked. And the people respond with this question, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Now, you might not recognize the significance of that question, but this is a very important question. Right? In fact, this might be the big question when it comes to God. Now, of course, if, 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 you, if, you, if you don't believe in God, well, then this question doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I'd like to talk further with you if that's the case, a separate conversation. But once you grant that there is a God, this God that has just made himself known as the plaintiff, then this is probably the next most foundational question that you could possibly ask of this God. What do you want from me? What do you require of me? And you might be asking, and it's very possible, it's very appropriate. The appropriate way to ask this question is to do it sincerely, and you'll get your answer that way. But, but you should know that the sincerity of the people here and the way that they're asking these questions, it's a little bit in question. This is where the context of the trial is, is important because, because this might have the appearance of spirituality, this question, right? With what shall I come before the Lord? Bow myself before God on high. That might have the appearance of of spirituality, but the tone, the commentators point out, in its context and in the way that it's written in the original language, the tone is arrogant. All right, to capture the sense of how they're actually asking these questions, you, had to, you have to hear the tone. I, actually, it's kind of like this. It's not sincerely like, God, what is it that you require of me because I want to do it. I want to do it with all my heart. Right? That's not the tone. The tone is more like, God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? And you can see it kind of escalate in the series of questions that the people ask. They escalate in price. You want this? No. You want this? No. How about this? Would this be good enough for you? It's kind of like, like sacrificial inflation. Right? This isn't good enough, huh? How about this? How about I get, oh, that's still not good enough. Right? You see, he starts with burnt offerings. How about we bring some of those, they say. Right? And then, they, and then some year-old calves. That would have been a little, a little bit more. A year old calf, you got to take care of it for a year. Requires some investment. And they're both plural, right? Offerings, calves. But then the numbers start increasing even more. Oh, that's not good enough for you maybe, huh? Uh, how about thousands of rams? How about that, verse 7? Right? Maybe that. Sacrifices of that, that kind of level, thousands of animals. It wasn't common, but it wasn't at least unheard of. Remember when the Solomon dedicated the temple? You had stuff, stuff like that, thousands of animals. But no, thousands aren't good enough. How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Right now we're getting silly, kind of. I mean, what does that even mean? The Hebrew isn't even completely clear. Rivers? Could be torrents, right? Just massive amounts of oil times 10,000, whatever that means, right? And the people are like, how about that? You wouldn't even be satisfied with that. And so they take it to the unthinkable. What if I gave you my firstborn? Right? Child sacrifice, the highest bid, 
as far as the bargaining can go. And it all indicates, behind the veil of spirituality, it all indicates, on the one hand, a belief at some level that God's favor can be bought. Right? How about I give you this? How about I give you that? Purchased with religious acts and religious ritual. On the other hand, it's also sort of a, a, a complaint. Right? That, that while we need to buy God's favor, we're, the people are almost saying to him, yeah, I need to buy it, but the price is too high. It keeps going up. Nothing's ever good enough. Now, there's more truth to the high price that's required to be in God's presence than the people probably understand, but they, but they, they, they don't see it that way. They expect to, that, they're, that they're able to pay back God back in some way for the rescue, the gift of the promised land, and at the same time, they're complaining that the price is too high. So in a sense, the people are, are pleading not guilty by reason of impossible standards, by trying to flip the accusation back against God. Right? It's too tough. You demand too much of me. And that's where Micah steps in in verse 8 when he explains, next point in the courtroom drama, he explains the requirement. That's verse 8. Micah says to the people, and this is probably the most well-known verse in Micah, Micah 6, 8, right? right? I'm not into tattoos and body art myself, but this is the body art verse right here. This is Micah 6, 8. You're missing the, missing the point of the sacrifices. You're missing the point of the law, God says. He says to the people, the Lord has told you, O man, what is good and what he requires of you. All right, this is the one, I'm not mocking it, assuming you rightly understand it. This really is a verse that you can write all over your life. All right, three things the Lord requires, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. All three, let's look, let's look quickly at them. To do justice, this is the Hebrew word mishpat. And it's more than just legal equity. It's, it's the entire scope of things that are wrong made right again. It is all things brought back into right alignment, to, to justify. And to do justice is to, to do justice is to make every effort to fulfill the obligations that we have to, to other human beings, to treat them as image bearers, to protect the, the weak, the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. That's how God speaks throughout the, the scripture, Old Testament and New. This is what doing justice means, to create a world where, 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 where to the extent we can, things are brought into line with his, with his standards. And to love kindness. And kindness, this is the Hebrew word chesed. And you've heard me talk about this word before. This is a really important word in the Bible. It's sometimes translated mercy, but it's a really tough word to get in English because there's no one English word that kind of gets it. Sometimes translated loving kindness or steadfast love. It's the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that God shows to his covenant people. And Micah says that not only should we treat others like that, but we should love it. We should love kindness. In other words, he commands not just the action, but the motivation as well. This should drive your heart because you love the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. Finally, he says to walk humbly. Walk humbly with your God. Now, to walk humbly, it means to, to walk circumspectly, uh, to, 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 walk, to, to live with with, a, with sensible consideration, with, with prudence, with wisdom, to live wisely. To walk humbly with God means that you, you trust God to be God when you're not God. To trust his wisdom over your own. To lean not on your own, under, own understanding, as the Proverbs would tell us. Right? That's it. That's Micah 6.8. More sermons on that verse than any other verse in Micah. Some misunderstanding, some taking it slightly wrong out of context perhaps. But this is a great summary of God's will 
for his people. This is the, the summum bonum, to, to use a fancy Latin phrase. This is the, our chief end, our highest purpose. Right? Now, of course, we don't meet it. The people of Judah didn't meet it. And so the Lord, with verse 8 as the standard, brings the indictment in verses 9 to 12. That's the next component in the legal proceeding, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Indictment. Now, that's kind of a fancy legal word, kids. You can use that to impress your friends if you want, indictment. It's kind of like the formal uh, accusation of a crime. Someone commits a crime and you say, look, you did this and here, here it is. Right? That's what the Lord is doing now. He's bringing the formal charges. And he's talking to the city, it says in verse 9, Jerusalem, and by implication, its people, the people who should be the residents of Jerusalem, the symbol of godliness. But they're not. They're not the symbol of godliness. Instead, they're symbols of greed. They're symbols of exploitation. We've seen some of these charges before. In fact, we've seen some of them through the whole first part of the book of Micah, where Micah goes into a lot more detail about these things. But they're mentioned here, verses 10 and 11, dishonest scales, dishonest weights. You know what that means? Right? When you, you know, today, we have fairly common and understood uh, ideas of what measurements are. Right? It's pretty easy to check stuff. It doesn't mean that cheating doesn't go on, but it's, it's pretty easy to, to, to check that a gallon is a gallon that a pound is a pound. Right, when I work for Sunoco on all the gas pumps, there's a, you know, it's inspected by you know, some agency for you know, U.S. weights and measures or whatever to make sure that it's appropriately calibrating. When you think you're getting a gallon, you're getting a gallon of gas when you pump it in your car. You may not like the price, but it's actually a gallon. Right? But back then, it was, it was a lot easier to, to cheat. You know, things were measured out on scales. Oh, you want, a, you want a pound? Well, let's see. I got a pound of rocks here, so let's see. If I put stuff on you, but it wasn't a pound of rocks. Right? It, it, was, it was different. They would play with the weights so that they would give you less than what they, they said they were giving you. Same thing for, for money. Right? Oh, how much money is that? Well, let's, let's weigh it and let's see. But they would monkey with the scales. That's what it's talking about here. Dishonest scales and, and weights. That's verses 10 and 11. Verse 12, the powerful use of violence to oppress the weak. People lie. People deceive. The early chapters of Micah, like I said, they go through some of this in in detail, but it's interesting here because Micah, it seems, is speaking not just to the leaders here, where in earlier chapters he was specifically highlighting and calling out the leaders and the rulers in, in Israel and in Judah, and appropriately so. They had responsibility. They were the ones in authority. It was appropriate to call them out, but here everyone seems to be implicated. All right, this indictment is against all the people. So the example being set, obviously, by the leaders seems to be going down through the entirety of society. Everybody's lying. Everybody's speaking deceit to, to one another. That's the indictment. Now, there's only one part left, sentence, verses 13 to 16. The evidence has been reviewed, and now the sentence is handed down, right? You see the shift to the sentence in verse 13 with the therefore. Therefore, because of that, this is what's going to happen to you. The sentence, the summary in verse 13. It's not very pleasant sounding when you look at it, right? What's it say? What's it say is coming for Judah? Grievous blows, desolation. That's not good. But remember, who's responsible for it? Who's the one who's responsible for the desolation that's coming? Why is this happening? End of verse 13. Because of your sin. Don't flip it back on God. It's the people's sin. Then verses 13 to 14 gives you a picture of what happens when you turn away from God. The sentence that fits the crime. 
God is the perfectly just judge. Sin is saying to God, I don't want you around. And the just sentence or consequence for that is God saying to us, let me show you how that feels. And in verse 13, we see how it feels. Nothing satisfies. Everything is, is futile. It's pointless. All right, go through the list. Eat, but not satisfied. You'll save things for later, but they won't keep. Right? You'll preserve, but then they won't be preserved. Right? Think of it like you know, uh, spending all, uh, all fall canning for the winter, and then you open the stuff in the winter, and it's just all rotten. Right? You'll sow, but you won't reap. Put the seeds in, but no crops. Right? Olives, lots of them, but you'll never get oil out of them. Grapes, lots of them, but you'll never enjoy the wine. Right? That's a picture of pretty severe discipline, a reversal of how God created the world. The earth was created to satisfy God's people, but sin brings a curse that reverses everything, that puts the earth in conflict with its people. And so when we go to created things and expect them to be God for us, we'll find that all it does is leave us empty. Nothing satisfies. Right? Perpetual disappointment. I, I remember, think of it like this. I remember writing once, um, I, think it was, I think it was the press release. There was a couple of years when I worked at Sunoco where I was responsible for writing the earnings release every quarter, the first draft anyway. The lawyers got their turn and the accountants got their turn and the executives got their turn. It got all marked up. But I was responsible for writing the first draft of the earnings release. And I remember one time I was uh, writing, pounding away, needed to catch the train uh, and was rushing. It was just about done, but I wanted to look over it before I sent it off. Um, I wanted to look over it one more time, do one more proof. So I slapped the laptop closed, grabbed my laptop, ran for the train. This was actually a more frequent occurrence than I'd like to admit. But I mean, literally running for the train, get on the train, open up the laptop, it's gone. Didn't save. Right now we've got much more like auto save kind of stuff, but it was gone. All that work. I tend to think that it's kind of like what, you know, what, what hell is like. Like you just, it's like work, 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 and then you get the blue screen, gone. Start again. And then just on repeat, over and over again. Complete dissatisfaction. Complete inability to see the fruit of your labor. Over and over and over again, forever. That's kind of what's being described here. Now then you get the reference, verse 16. I mean, since we're going through the whole chapter, I might as well mention this. Omri and Ahab. Just to add on to the gloom, these were two really bad kings in the northern kingdom more than a century before Micah. The Lord is justifying the sentence to the people by invoking, pointing to these two wicked kings and saying it's just like them, which would have been like, ouch, really? Like them? Like Ahab and Omri? Now that's where chapter 6 ends. God telling the city of Jerusalem, remember he's talking to the city here, telling the city he's going to make it a desolation. That's a pretty bleak way to end the chapter now chapter six thankfully is followed by chapter seven but do we just i mean see you next week it's all for this week enjoy the week of desolation that is in front of you see if it gets any better next sunday come back no there's something here there is the very last two words of chapter six what are they you see it what are they comes back again he used these words at the beginning of the chapter but he ends the chapter with this my people you see that don't miss that These are not insignificant words. These are covenant words here. When God tells Moses how he's going to save the Israelites from Egypt back in the book of of Exodus, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then over and over again, when Moses speaks to Pharaoh, God has him say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Leviticus 26, God tells the people, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. 
the charge given to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. God tells David, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. King Hezekiah, very possibly the king of Judah when Micah was saying this, God calls him Hezekiah, the leader of my people. The prophet Jeremiah, over and over again in calling the people of Judah to repentance over a hundred years after Micah used this covenant formula over and over again where he repeated the words of God who said to the people, you are my people and I will be your God. You see the significance? Even in the midst of the discipline, the covenant is still in view. It's not lost. Because even in this sentence, there is a glimpse of grace for Judah because God says they are still my people. The same is true for you. The same is true for us. Right? Judgment and wrath are reserved for those outside of Christ who resist repentance, who refuse to come to God. But chastisement and discipline, painful as it may be, is for the good of God's people. The rod, as it's used here in Micah 6, 9, the rod is a grace, John Calvin says, because it is intended to rouse and to awaken a sleeping people and point them back to the goodness of their God. That doesn't mean that the pain of discipline is erased, It doesn't mean that Jerusalem isn't going to actually face real desolation. But it means that all of it and everything that comes into our lives is intended with a redemptive purpose when God is behind it, when he is our God and we are his people. Back in 2016, a guy by the name of Joe Cerna was brought before a judge in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He had violated his probation. He had been given requirements he failed to meet them. A few years before that, Joe had been arrested for drunk driving and as a part of his probation, he was not allowed to drink. But he had to check in regularly, submit himself to testing. And he lied to the judge about his drinking. He failed a test and the judge knew that something had to be done to bring Joe back. He needed to feel the weight of that violation. Not for wrath, but to bring him back. And the judge said, I had to do it. I had to give Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable for what he did. Now, it was only one night in jail, and you might kind of say, just one night. But, but see, the judge knew when he was sentencing Joe that this would seem to Joe an eternity. See, Joe had served three tours as a Green Beret in Afghanistan, had received two Purple Hearts, and had survived a crash where his vehicle had plunged into a river, and he was the sole survivor of a vehicle that was filling with water and had trapped him and so because of that incident and the PTSD that followed he had a paralyzing fear of enclosed spaces a jail cell even for one night would be a picture of hell the judge knew all this and yet still he knew that Joe needed to learn he needed something to break him out of the cycle of wandering away from the requirements that he had been given so he needed a lesson so off to jail Joe went But a few minutes after Joe went into the jail cell and the door closed behind him, you can see it on the the, uh, security camera footage. Down the hall comes, with the guards, Judge Lou Oliveira. And they open the door. And the judge goes in to spend the night with Joe. To talk with him. To help him with the fear of what that space looked like. To bring him back. He had to be held accountable, the judge said. But I just felt I had to go with him. The judge served the sentence with the criminal. Now here's the point. Whatever challenge you might be experiencing, whatever struggle, 
whether it is a direct discipline for sin in your life or simply a consequence of living in a broken world that God intends to use to grow your faith. Whatever your sentence, whatever your lot in this world, God does not leave you in the cell alone. In the person of Jesus, he entered the cell. But it's even better than that. He didn't just come to hang out over meatloaf and pass the time with conversation and talk therapy. He came to serve our sentence. In fact, to pay the penalty for our parole violation. That's what Jesus did. The terms of the, of the plea bargain that call for our perfect obedience could never be perfectly kept by us. We will never meet the requirement. That, at the very least, the Israelites were right about. The standard is too high for us to be able to to reach. Now, they might have been saying it arrogantly, but they were right. That's why Jesus needed to come, to enter the cell, to perfectly obey, to assume the punishment, to set us free. You know, the original tone of Micah 7, that's what I said. It might be an, an arrogant exaggeration. It might have been said in sarcasm. Lord, you're such a taskmaster that I need, do I need to even give my firstborn? But our transgressions are so great that the cost of acquittal is greater than burnt offerings, greater than thousands of rams, greater, rams, greater than 10,000 rivers of oil. The cost is the sacrificial death of a son. In this case, the eternal son of God, the firstborn, meaning the heir over all creation. That's what Jesus did for you. And this, what we do here every week, this is our rehearsal of grace. This is your opportunity to be reminded against the temptation that it, that cross is boring. The resurrection is boring. The exodus is boring. This is why we come here week after week after week because Jesus is our exodus. He is the one who leads us out of slavery to our sin, who redeems our curses and transforms them into blessings in a way to which Balaam could only point. The one who will one day lead us fully and finally from Shittim to Gilgal across the ultimate river into the eternal promised land where we will rest in the presence of our God and he will be with his people forever. In the meantime, what do we do? Well, that's Micah 6, 8. We pursue justice. We do it with grace-filled hearts, trusting the results in humility to the Lord who loves his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness and the grace that you have shown to us. Forgive us, Lord, when we continually and regularly forget it. When we accuse you of not doing enough for us. Lord, whenever that comes into our minds, point us back to the cross. Show us again what you've done. Show us the empty tomb. And remind us of your goodness and your grace. Lord, we do pray that you would be as gentle as possible with our need for reminder but Lord the consequence of not coming back to you is too great and so with trembling we do pray that you would bring into our lives whatever is necessary to keep our relationship with you help us to see the things in our lives as loving discipline from the hand of a loving father for his people we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.